The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. But now let's turn a little bit from that. And let's come to what is driving uh, all of this growth, what is driving all of these ministries. Friends ask me sometimes when they look at our church and they say, wow, your church has experienced a lot of growth over the years. Uh, what, what's the secret in the sauce? What's the secret ingredient? And I tell them very easily, there's no secret sauce. We believe and we build every bit of our ministry upon God's word. We tether ourselves to it, that we believe that he will move powerfully through his word in our lives and that the spirit of God working within the individual will always work through the individual, that the spirit of God working within the community of faith, the church, will always work through that community of faith, the church, to make an impact in the community. And so we come this morning now to God's word, and then we come together to his table, to his feast. So let's pray now and ask God uh, to bless the ministry of his word today. Father, we come in great humility, and yes, we can talk about buildings, and we can talk about staff and all those things. But Father, those will disappear one day. But it says that your word will never end. And so Father, we come to your eternal word now. And we pray that you would teach us, Father, that you would help us to understand more profoundly what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, the true kingdom, what it means to have the king's spirit residing in us, flowing into our lives and powerfully affecting us so that we would have a powerful effect on the world around us in his name. So, Father, speak for your children, your servants, listen. To be you, be all glory and honor and praise, both now and forever. Amen. Jesus was preaching in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to pick up in verse 38 and read to the end of the chapter. This is the very word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. I was joking with a friend recently, and they said, are we about done with the Sermon on the Mount? I can't take it anymore. (laughs) And I said, I wish we were. I can't take it much anymore either. And that quote that we had last week from C.S. Lewis is one that, if you don't remember it, you can go hopefully go back and find it, It was just saying how challenging disturbing how high and deep the Sermon on the Mount is as it presents to us kingdom life 
The king has entered in and he has established now his kingdom. And Jesus, in his first inaugural work, comes and he gathers to himself his disciples. He brings them and then many others who are listening in. And he says, okay, I'm not like any other king. And the kingdom that I'm establishing is not like any other kingdom. That when you enter into my kingdom, the kingdom of my father, through me, here's what happens. You are radically and totally transformed For the very spirit of the king enters in, it flows into your life. It it changes you, it turns you from the inside out. All of a sudden, everything about you has changed. Nothing is the same. That I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, created for good works. I have been recreated. I have been this chrysalis that is now come to full bore. That I have been dismantled from who I once was. And now I am no longer my own. I was bought with a price. I live the king's life, as it were, in the king's kingdom, for the king's glory, and by the king's rules. That it's totally different. Many of us like to think of Jesus as sort of we would, get, we would get a passport. And we like that we're citizens of this world. And we'd love a passport to go hang out uh, without problem, a visa that we could get into the kingdom and get some of the benefits of the kingdom. But then we want to come home and we want this to be our world. We get all caught up with the things about this world. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's just the opposite. You've been transported. You have been transformed. You are now part of a different kingdom. And I'm giving you opportunity to stay where you are in this world of men and women. To live here in this created world for a season. But wherever you go, guess what? Wherever your feet land on the ground, you're establishing the kingdom. That the church that is established here, Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, is an outpost of the kingdom. You realize that, right? God, in all of his eternal uh, wisdom, decided, however many years ago, to set up shop right here because he said, guess what? There are people who are under the influence of darkness, the other kingdom. There are people who need uh, to come into the kingdom of my son. And so I'm establishing Hilton Head Presbyterian Church and all the other churches uh, that proclaim his name and hold to his word. I'm establishing them not to be little holy huddles within their fortified walls, uh, but to be outposts of the kingdom, expanding out out within the world, expanding out. And the way that we expand out into the world is we live out the citizenship that is ours in Christ. That wherever you go, if you're a student here and you go on to a school campus and you're maybe ministering even in your home and your campus there, or wherever you go, you are establishing the kingdom right there. People are looking at you and they're saying, okay, you're a citizen of that other kingdom. What does that look like? When you go into your workplace, when you go uh, into the places where you recreate, when you go to the restaurants where you are, if people see you bow your head and say, thank you, Jesus, for this food, they're expecting and seeing that there's something totally different about you there and how you eat, how you drink, how you tip, how you do everything is done because we're no longer our own. So to my friend who asked if we were done, no, we're not. I'm sorry. Because what I'm learning is God continues to dismantle my understanding of what he expects. And he raises the bar and deepens it down. And he says, Bill, I'm making it so absolutely difficult for you to do this on your own that you'll finally come to the point and understand it's impossible. 
And so maybe finally, McCutcheon, you'll bend the knee, you'll ask me, the king, to re-influence your life, to flood back in again, to give you the spirit of fresh and anew every moment of every day, to live this thing out in the world, because the world desperately needs to see Christians living it out. Right? So that's what we're about. So today, I hope, is an encouragement and not a discouragement to you. Because Jesus was talking to people who were absolutely astounded. They'd never heard anything like this. They were, they were flabbergasted by it all because he kept starting statements like this. You've heard it said of old. You were taught once these things, but I say to you, I, the true king, I'm the one who speaks, and I don't need you to say amen and amen. I need you to simply accept. And so what we're looking at this week in the few moments that we have together is the exceeding nature of Christian love. The exceeding nature of Christian love. The second part of what we read was Jesus talking about love. You've heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray uh, for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus begins this by, by teaching this, the difference between limited versus unlimited love. Limited versus unlimited love. The traditional teaching of the day, you've heard that it was said, the traditional teaching of the day was that there were limits to love, that we could determine how and who to love. That actually what happened, if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you will find that it says uh, love, it says that you've heard love your neighbor. You'll find that statement in the Old Testament. But somewhere along the way, the rabbinic traditions and there was additions and the addition was, but hate your enemies. Even in the Qumran, the scrolls of the Qumran community, find that little added statement and hate your enemies. Because what was happening in that day was the Israelites, the Jews, were trying to obey God's law. They thought that they could become citizens of the kingdom by their own actions. So the only way that you could do that would be to reduce the law down to something that you could actually accomplish. And so here's what they did. Love your neighbor. Ah, neighbor. Let's define neighbor. Neighbor is someone exactly like me. My neighbor, for the Jew, was another Jew. And they added, hate your enemies. So anybody who's not Jewish, hate them. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, it was so institutionalized that they actually believed that they were honoring God by hating everybody other than Jews. If you were a Gentile, uh, you weren't going to vacation in Israel. It wasn't a really welcoming place. If you were the woman from Samaria who was of mixed blood, you weren't welcome in Israel. You were hated. And the people thought, by my hatred, isn't this fascinating how warped the human mind can be, that I can hate somebody and think that somehow I'm honoring God. Jesus was saying, no, that's a limited view. Here's what you should understand. Jesus introduces the exceeding nature of Christian love unlimited love of others regardless of who they are because Jesus was saying this my heavenly father shows no partiality he makes the sun to rise on the wicked and on the good he makes the rain to fall on the wicked and the good for God so loved the world you see the pictures of his general love for all people and there is this sense of saying God loves in this way He's saying, if you want to show that you are a child of my father, a brother of mine, a sister of mine, part of the family, part of the kingdom, then you should love in that same way. 
that we love across lines that normally break us down. We love in this way. Jesus was saying this distinguishes us from the world around us. He's saying the world can love people just like themselves. That's not that hard, right? Who do you normally gravitate to? You normally gravitate to people who look like you, smell like you, talk like you, hang out like you, eat like you, all those kind of things, like you. Jesus is saying, that's easy. Anybody can do that. He's calling us to something that the world can't do on its own. He's pointing us beyond that. He's pointing us to the moreness, to create a word, the moreness of Christian love. It's more than what the world offers. He says, even the tax collectors can do that. The Gentiles can do what you guys do. He says, but you're not those people. You're citizens of the kingdom. It's more than that. There's a quote for you in the front of your bulletin that we put these things in there each week for you to read. I hope you take time uh, to read through this and to look at it. And it's by Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones, and he says this, the Christian is the man who is above and goes beyond the natural man at his very best and highest. There are many people in the world who are not Christians, but who are very moral and highly ethical men whose word is their bond and who are scrupulous and honest, just and upright. You never find them doing a shady thing to anybody, but they are not Christian, and they say so. They do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and may, be rejected the, may, and may have rejected the whole of the New Testament, teaching with scorn, but they are absolutely straightforward, honest, and true. Now, the Christian, by definition here, is a man who is capable of doing something that the best natural man cannot do. He goes beyond and does more than that. He exceeds. He is separate from all others, and not only from the worst among others, but from the very best and highest among others. We set the bar really low. I need to love better than the worst that the world has to offer. Jesus is saying, no, we should be loving and exceeding the best that the world has to offer. This week, I know nothing about the man out in Paradise, California, but a very generous man, older gentleman, came to the high school there where 90% of the students' homes had been destroyed or affected by the fire. And this man, out of his own pocket, sat down and had a check for $1,000 that he gave to every single student had their name written on it. $1.1 million in total he gave away to the people who were affected by, by the fires in paradise. And I thought about that quote. Does my love for Jesus and from Jesus, would it lead me to do more than that? Maybe this man is a believer. Maybe he comes from that position, but he didn't mention it, and it doesn't seem maybe that he was. But it's this picture of saying, we're called to exceed even the best, not just make it better than the worst. So here's a question for you. Is there a moreness to your love? Is there a moreness to your love? Is it more uh, than what the world has to offer? So then the question becomes, okay, we're called to love. Well, what kind of love? There's all kinds of love in the world, and there's actually different kinds of love within the Bible and within uh, our, our definitions of love. There's eros love, erotic love. Interestingly enough, the Greek word eros is never found within the scriptures because it was too perverse, it was too perverted, it was too sensual. Uh, it had been, it's, so you won't find it, but it was that physical love. It was that uh, love between a man and a woman. 
Then there's storge love, which is family love. It's the love that parents have for a child and children have for one another. It's within the family, but neither of those are what Jesus is calling us to. Then there's philos, philia. It's the strong affection. It is where we get Philadelphia, uh, that brotherly affection, that love that goes deeper. And philia uh, is the greatest love that a human, by their own ability, can, can muster up. You can't go past this. Philia is the best that we can do. And you know this, especially when, when Jesus comes to Peter, and after Peter has denied Jesus, and he comes back to him after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he looks at Peter and he goes, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, I philia you. I, I love you the best that I possibly could love you. And Jesus looks at him and goes, yes, but do you agape me? Peter goes, I philia you. Jesus says, I'm calling you, do you agape me? Do you love me with a divine love, that fourth love? And that happens to be the word that he uses here. He says, love this way, agape love. It is that divine love. This is the love that is without variableness. It's a love that says there's no variable that can make me say, well, I'll love you, but I won't love you, and I'll do, and I won't do. It's love without variableness. It loves even when the object of love is hateful or unlovely. It is love for no reason at all. Or love even when there are ample reasons to discourage it. It's a godlike love. This kind of love, this agape love, is to characterize the life of the Christian. So go out and agape this week. And guess what? We all would fail. So how is it that Jesus tells us to do something that we can't in and of our own strength accomplish? It's because Jesus, in all of the New Testament, and all the teachings in the New Testament, when we speak of agape love, it was never spoken of outside of a direct connection to the cross. Go and do a study of that in the New Testament. And what you're going to find is where you find us called to agape love, it is always tied to the cross John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's love tied that there is a general love for all, but there is a specific love for his own that is tied to the power of the cross. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. What God is saying is, I agape you because of the work of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He agaped us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. That the cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme example of agape love. The unvariableness of love. This picture of saying now, I will love by the grace of Christ in me. Now, that's the kind of love that he's calling us to. But you need, there's a little differentiation that we need to make here. And that's the difference between loving and liking. You know there's a difference between those two. It's interesting in our culture that we have reduced love down into an accident. Because many of you talk about and when you describe your relationship with your beloved, you talk something like this. Well, I was going along and I fell in love with my beloved, like you were walking down the street, tripped, found yourself in a ditch, and oh my goodness, there's Lisa Clary. 
I wasn't looking, and she just happened to be there. And therefore, because of this accident, I just fell right into it. Love, biblical love, isn't based on the will, or based on feelings. Like is always based on feelings. And we can't control our emotions all the time. So there'll be plenty of times when you fall in and out of like. You may not like the person that you're married to. Have any of you ever experienced that in your marriage? chickens (laughs) we'll go back to truth telling from last week's sermon uh, on that sure I tell couples all the time you're going to fall in and out of like there'll be plenty of times when you don't like the person that you are with there are plenty of times you're not going to like your parents that you're going to like your children that you're going to like your friends that you're going to like but we're called to a love an agape that says this, regardless of my emotions, because like is tied to my emotions, agape is tied to my will. Agape is tied to not me falling in love, but me making a direct decision against even my own feelings to say, I am going to love this unlovely, unlovable person who has wounded me, who has scarred me, who may or may not have my best interest in mind, but I'm going to love them because God has loved me in this way, and I determine today to love that person. Take a moment to think who that person is. How quickly did that name come? Some of you are like, oh, I know them. They're sitting right next to me. Well, marriage is the incredible picture of that, by the way. It doesn't mean that if you're not married, you can't experience it. But God said, the best way for me to describe this love is within the marital union of one man and one woman coming together and of recognizing that they are both broken, sinful individuals, but yet we are now constantly submitting ourselves and taking and putting our wants, hopes, and desires under the wants, hopes, and desires of somebody else, even when they don't deserve it, and most often when they don't deserve it. That's what God is calling us to, is this level of love, this agape love that we have, that love is a matter of the will. And if our wills are surrendered to Christ, it can be done. And we can even love our enemies. We can even, and I know some of your stories. You've shared with me profound stories of woundedness from people who should never have wounded you. And what I hear so often from you is the ability to love them. The ability to to offer to them something that they do not deserve because you have been given something that you do not deserve and it has transformed your life radically. And so you determine, I'm going to love them. I'm going to act loving to them. I'm going to put their hopes, wants, needs, and desires above my own because, gosh, that is what God did for me. It is that beauty. And by the way, when you begin to love that way, you find that it's a costly love. This agape love is a costly love. Like, it doesn't cost much to like. Love is costly. We don't have time, but the first part uh, that we read uh, about retaliation and all that, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What Jesus is really saying there is love within the context of Christian relationship. All of a sudden, it is a matter of giving up your rights. The right to retaliate, an eye for an eye. The right to your things. Someone sues you for a tunic, give them also your coat. The right to your time. 
that in this day and age when Jesus was teaching, they were, uh, they were an occupied people. So a Roman citizen or a Roman official could say to any Jew, walk with me a mile, carry with me my burden for a mile. And Jesus is saying this, when you understand the love that God has for you, you can love your enemy, this Roman, who is now conscripting you into service, cared nothing about what you were previously doing, and is now taking you and said, go with me a mile. And when you get to the end of the mile, you're not supposed to go, be done. You look at them and go, can I go another mile for you? Because you give up your rights to these things. Love is about giving up our rights. We want to fight for justice all the time, and we give up. And the fourth little thing that he mentions there is the right for money. That if somebody has a need, you give up your right for money and all that, and you help them. And so it's this picture of recognizing that the supreme love of God for us in Jesus Christ, it has a displacing effect on our lives. It displaces us from center of stage. It displaces us. That we're no longer on the throne. That we're no longer the most important person in our own story. I hate to break that to you. You're not the most important character in the story. God is the most important character in your story. And he is saying this, I have transformed you. So that through your life it gains meaning, it gains substance, it gains everything that it could ever gain when I am in the center of it and I displace everything else. As we wrap up in this sermon, I want you to see this. Yes, it is different. Love is different from like. It's a deep, godly, divine love always tied to the cross. It's costly. It's different from what the world has to offer. But I want you to know this. You have access to the source. You have access to the power. You have access to do what Christ has called you to do, or else he would never have invited you, commanded, and demanded that you do this. He is saying, I invite you, follower of mine, transformed by my spirit, now filled with my person, that this flowing out of you, tap into it. Go back to a well that will never dry out. Quit trying to plug in a 9-volt battery into something that can only be powered by the very power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that called everything into being. That's the power source. Because, by the way, those difficult people that you thought of a little while ago, that person that's still in your mind, is it easy to love them? Not rhetorical. Is it easy? No. It's incredibly difficult. But here's the power source. God. You, the name above all names, the creator of heaven and earth, you who has all power at you, in you, and you now residing in me. God, I need you to give me the power today to love this incredibly unlovable person that you put me in relationship with. Because I can't do it on my own. It's finally getting to a point where we come to our knees and go, I can't do it. You're just starting to get it. God, this is too much for me. Ah, you're getting a little closer. God, I need some other plan than the one that I've been using because my plan, quite honestly, it stinks. Ah, now you're there. Come to me. Come and pray. Come and ask the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to descend upon you, to fill you. Why does Paul say, be filled with the Holy Spirit regularly, constantly, day to day? Why do you think you need to be filled regularly by the Holy Spirit? Here's the big, huge theological answer. You leak, and so do I. We can't contain it all. It comes in, it flows through us. 
And so we constantly need to be going back to this source of saying, I need clean living water. I need my heart and mind renewed. I need my heart made alive again. It's been under attack. It's bruised. It's wounded. I need this healing. I need this from you, God. Because loving unlovable people is really, really difficult. And then we look at a table like this. And it's the table that God said, yeah, loving you was pretty difficult too. You're not all that. You're less than you think. And my son, I was willing to crush. My son, I was willing to pierce. My son, I was willing to devastate so that you who were unlovable and unlovely and at enmity against him and didn't seek him and didn't want him, that my son, I was going to do this so that I could love you because I can't love you any other way. It has to be through Christ and Christ alone. That's why Christ said, I am the only way to the Father. It's through me. You have to come through me. You have to first wrestle with your lack of loveliness. You have to think of that person who right now you're going, I don't think I can love them, and go, I'm worse than that person in my relationship with God, but God through Christ has loved me in him. Folks, this is the source, the beauty of the gospel. Sometimes I think we should do this every single week, that we should gather around this table to go, I'm going to leave this place and I need to be reminded. I need to taste of the divine food. I need to come to the divine table. I need to come to this and be reminded that that is grape juice, yes, but it represents blood that was spilled for me. And that's bread, yes, but it is representative of the body of Christ that was crushed for me so that God could take me unlovable and make me worthy of the name of His Son. And to go out from this place and to pursue the people who are our enemies and to say, because of the love that I've been shown in Christ, I'm going to love you today. And when they go, why? Go, let me tell you about my Savior.